Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, thank you and welcome back to our study of the Avergatinos and we're continuing with the rather long hypothesis 21, uh, where uh, the authors are talking about uh, taking counsel from elders. And if you remember over these past weeks, we've been speaking a lot about uh, the revealing one's thoughts, letting go of embarrassment, shame, and revealing one's thoughts to one's elders in order to bring them into the light, in order that the elder might be able to apply, apply a kind of healing balm, like encouragement, uh, encourage repentance, and also offer guidance and, uh, and counsel. And uh, the focus here in the hypothesis that we're looking at now is on not being too quick to uh, place one's confidence in just anyone, but rather in one where you've discerned the action of God's grace in their life, that they are a discerning individual, and that that discernment has arisen uh, out of experience, that they've come to have an experiential knowledge of uh, things divine, but also of the spiritual battles that we, we go through on a day-to-day -day basis, and so can be good guides. And so we were given examples of both, those who are very good, and very kind and tender-hearted, and also those who are very bad and uh, lead others to a loss of hope and despair. Uh, but it also guides us through how it is that we are to listen to the counsel uh, of elders, and sometimes when the, the advice switches up or when it does not seem to help, and how it is that we are to discern and understand that in our spiritual battle as well. What is going on there if the advice or the counsel that is given to us does not seem to have an effect upon the things that we struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis. So again, we are on page 174, uh, the third paragraph, the brother obeyed. You see where we're at there? Okay. The brother obeyed the advice of the elder and returned to his cell. After Abba Apollo had settled the brother into his cell, he went to that elder who by his stern words had caused the brother to lose hope. He stood outside his cell and tearfully implored God. My Lord, he said, who establishes all things for our benefit and allows temptations to come to us for our good. Hear this, my request, and cause the warfare that besets the brother to turn upon this elder here so that he might now learn in his advanced years, that which for so many years he did not manage to learn, that we must also suffer along with those against whom war is waged. And so if you remember, he had shamed this young monk into leaving the monastic life altogether. And it was only by Abba Apollo's tenderness that he gets him to return to his cell. And uh, if you remember, the, the last line of the previous paragraph was so beautiful. He says to him, so much, not so much is cured by human effort as by Christ's love for man, that he sends him back to his cell with this understanding that it's, it's really by the grace of, and mercy of God that we are brought to, to healing and certainly to forgiveness. And that it's when we rely too much upon ourselves that we can fall into despair uh, whenever we find ourselves struggling. And so he, he leads him back to his cell, but in the process, he prays to God for this aged uh, elder who had led him into this despair that he might learn the lessons that he had failed to learn in his youth. And so come to understand uh, not only the pain that he caused this young monk, but learn the lessons that he needed for the spiritual life. He goes on to say, when we had finished this short prayer, he stood standing near the cell, near the cell, a black creature who began to shoot arrows at the elder. Forthwith, the elder jumped up and as if drunk, spun around this way and that. When he was unable to bear any more, he left his cell in a fury and took the same road which the younger brother had taken in returning to the world. When Abba Apollo saw him leaving in this way, he understood at once what was happening and running ahead by another road overtook the elder. Where are you going? He asked him. What is the reason for the great agitation which has taken possession of you? The elder, realizing that the saint knew everything out of shame, said nothing in reply. 
Return to your cell, Abba Apollo then said to him. And now knowing your weakness, understand that either the devil has been unaware of you or has ignored you, and that for this reason you have not been made worthy to struggle with him. All that has occurred is proof that you are unable to bear his attacks for even one day. This happened to you because when you once received a younger brother who was beset by the enemy of all, you caused him to lose hope instead of strengthening him in his struggle. You did not heed the wise counsel, deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain. Nor did you think of the parable about our savior which says, a bruised reed shall he not break and a smoking flax shall he not quench. For no one would be able to endure the onslaught of the enemy, nor would anyone be able to extinguish the flame of nature did not the grace of Christ guard over the human weakness. Hence, since divine providence has been fulfilled for our sake, let us together in prayer ask God to remove from you the scourge which he allowed against you. For he permits us to be wounded and yet again restores us. He has touched us and his hands have healed us. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and ringeth up. So a beautiful story. And, um, you know, that he becomes oppressed immediately by the, the very same demon. And he stands revealed in the face of it because he can't even bear the struggle with the enemy for a short period of time. And so he's allowed to experience in a very tangible way the despair that he was supposed to alleviate in the younger brother. And it's interesting as we go forward, we, we begin to see in these elders that they are to have a love and tenderness that is directed towards those in their care, that they are to see their, their, own, their struggles as their own. And so they take up the battle with them, pray with them, take on the penance with them in order to draw them back. And so never do they approach them in a condescending way but as fellow strugglers in, this, in the spiritual battle, or as he puts it here, that we all struggle with the same enemy. It's the same enemy that attacks us. And the reference to Christ, uh, the, quoting here the prophet Isaiah, I've always loved the phrase. It's often translated a little bit different. The bruised reed, he shall not break, and the smoke, smoking flax, he shall not quench. So the smoking candle, it won't like, he won't snuff out the candle. So the weak and the feeble ones are to be given extra care. So those whose desire for God is not burning brightly, that little spark is to be fanned into a great flame. Or if they are being bent over in, in the attack, they're to be strengthened and buoyed up, not to, to be torn down by being made to feel guilty. And so the same tenderness and mercy that Christ showed to individuals that the elder is to show to others. And then maybe the, the, the second thing, and then I'll open it up for comments here, is the focus upon the action of divine providence here, that God will uh, at times allow us to be scourged, uh, not in a wrathful way, but in order that we might be delivered from what is oppressing us in a similar way to what we see this elderly monk going through, that will be allowed to experience the consequence of our pride or other sin, uh, especially when we look upon others with a harsh and judgmental eye. And uh, I've mentioned a couple times uh, the, uh, a verse from Proverbs, pride rideth before the fall. And it's such a beautiful image that it's pride is like a horse we are riding on. And the moment that we get too comfortable or think that we have control, as it were, of the beast is the moment that we're going to fall when we lose our sense of attentiveness and watchfulness of heart. Anthony. Perhaps this story illustrates the peculiar image in scripture that God hardens hearts like Romans chapter nine all things for Christ, but God permits to each person temptations or struggles which could be for our good, but makes it appear God hates them, especially when we are previously unmerciful 
or I'm off the mark. Now, I think we see things even that similarly within the Old Testament. We hear that phrase, you know, God hardened their hearts, that he allowed them to experience something of uh, the effects of pride, which is precisely to harden one's heart, both towards God and towards others. And uh, we see this with Pharaoh, you know, certainly in the stories of Moses and, and uh, also within the spiritual literature here, that, uh, that God will allow them to come even further under the grip of the evil one. And what, what sort of comes to mind is the scripture passage where there is correction, where Christ is talking about correction of others, first bring the person to first talk to them individually, and then, and then with another if they remain hardened in their sin, and then eventually to the church, and then if they, or uh, is Paul who said this, I'm, I'm a little off here tonight, but in any case, and then eventually you hand him over to Satan you allow him to experience the full burden of, of the nature of his sin to be fully uh, possessed by it, as it were, or oppressed by it, in the hope that the person will awaken to uh, the darkness of that, that they will experience the poverty that that brings to, to their life, and so be able to, to turn in repentance back to God. And... Uh, you know, we've talked here before about John Paul saying, uh, St. John Paul II saying, sin is its own punishment. And so sometimes God allows us to experience the full extent of that uh, in order to bring us to repentance, uh, especially if our hearts become hardened in some way. So I, I don't think you're off the mark altogether. I think we have to be careful in terms of how we interpret it in the sense of not... Uh, you know, seeing God, you know, joyfully angry at another or seeking to crush another. Uh, I think always there, whether there's punishment or lifting a person up, it's always with the hope of, of healing, of drawing, drawing him or her to himself. Okay. All right. So after Abba Apollo had said these things and had blessed him, the elder was immediately released from his warfare. The Abba further advised the elder to ask God to grant him the skill of teaching so that he would know what to say whenever he was asked for guidance. So, you know, it's interesting, Abba Apollo doesn't humiliate him even uh, after uh, the, the extent of his driving this young man to despair and then experiencing uh, the oppression of the evil one himself, that he, he lifts him up as well and encourages him to enter fully into the warfare and to ask God to give him the grace to be a faithful teacher. And so he doesn't humiliate him and make him feel as though uh, that he would be incapable, completely incapable of doing this. Mark Kelly, the ancient Greeks said, those that, gods, that the gods wish to bring down, destroy, they first make great. Perhaps because of the incarnation, we can say, those that God wishes to make great, he first brings them low. Right, it got, God turns things on their head, as it were, and it's the humble ones that are exalted. And, uh, and sometimes it's only, you know, when those who see themselves are great, that are humbled or humiliated by life, or come to experience their real poverty, that their eyes are open to wh where salvation and freedom comes from. And, uh, and that comes to us only from God. It's amazing, you know, the, I think, again, the fathers are often looked at as being very harsh and placing so much emphasis upon the ascetical life as if they didn't understand how deeply this was tied to the grace of God, that all of their ascetical acts and warfare was to open them, so, open them more deeply to the action of God's grace in their life. And even those acts in and of themselves were driven by, by the grace of God. And uh, so they weren't, you know, certainly some of them could, like the one el elder here mentioned in the story. But again and again in my reading of the fathers, I see this profound emphasis upon the grace of God, 
that for them, grace was the beginning and end of all things. And so really to understand the importance of grace and the action of grace, I think the best thing for us to do is to read these early fathers. Okay. Anthony, did you have another comment? Your virtual hand, okay, sorry. Now that from what we have said, we learn that there is no safer road to salvation than for each person to confess his thoughts to the most discerning of the fathers and through them to be directed toward virtue, never following his own will or judgment. If a person has by chance dealt with some elder or other person less skilled or experienced, he should not for this reason hide his thoughts and fail to confess to more capable fathers. Dealings with a few inexperienced confessors should not shake one's trust towards everyone. Just as we examine a medical doctor's scientific capability beforehand, so we should examine the elder to whom we are about to reveal our thoughts. And then only should we reveal to him our spiritual wounds and submit to the therapy which he recommends, accepting it willingly, even if for the moment it causes us pain. And so it's a hard thing. And as we mentioned in the past, and as the fathers have mentioned, a great deal of damage can be done and it can strip people of hope uh, when they are treated harshly or poorly. And yet uh, the, the, the value of our spiritual life and the value of this lesson of the revealing of one's thoughts is so important for the spiritual life that we, we don't want to give up there. And I think that's why through the rest of this, Hills drive home the importance of finding someone who is truly discerning. And, and I think this is good counsel all around that we would take as long as we need really to find someone that we feel that has this ability to guide and, and do this kind of, uh, he describes it here as therapy. It's sort of interesting. I, don't, I wonder what the actual word is I'll have to, the, someone has a Greek text of the Vergatinas to see what it actually is. Uh, but to describe it as therapy is very, very much like the Eastern Fathers, the healing of the soul. And so you, you really want to see someone who is this kind of spiritual physician, who has the capacity to discern what the ailment is and to be able to apply the appropriate medicine. So just as we would do with a doctor to make sure you know, that we know that they have the skills necessary. So we would want to look for someone that has an, not only an understanding in the mind, but through experience of the nature of the spiritual battle and the medicines to be applied. Okay. Anything before we move on to St. Barsanufius? Nope. Okay. A brother asked an elder, tell me father, whom should I ask about my thoughts? And if it is necessary, should I also ask another confessor as well about the same thoughts? It's interesting, even though the, these, these writings were between the fourth and the seventh century, how this is still acted out today. Things don't change very much over the course of time. This idea of moving between elders or confessors isn't anything new. And so the elder answers, you must ask him in whom you have trust and whom you know to be able to take on the thoughts of others and to trust in him as in God. To ask another about the same thought shows a lack of faith and is in an action, I'm sorry, and is an action of the devil. For if you are certain that God has spoken to you through the mouth of your elder, what need is there for you to test God by asking another the same thing. And so it's putting both God and the elder to the test that once one has to truly discerned this and has been in a relationship with an elder, the evil one can plant seeds of discontent between uh, uh, a directee and his elder and seek to break down that trust in one way or another, to put a thought before him that maybe it would be best, you know, I heard this other priest preaching about these things and it seemed very wise and maybe it was wise, but he can use that thought to pull an individual away from the elder who knows him well and say, well, maybe I should go and speak to this particular confessor 
just to see what he has to say on the matter, even though he knows nothing, perhaps knows nothing about us or knows nothing about the struggle that we've engaged in for the, through the course of the years. And so it's, it shows, as he says, a kind of lack of faith, but it's also testing, putting God to the test and putting one's elder to the test, to the counsel that is given. And uh, it's a pretty, it's a big temptation. And uh, it's, it's not calling us, I think, to be, uh, to lo- let go of our own, you know, gifts of discernment and, discri- you know, keep us from discriminating in terms of listening deeply to what is being told to us, especially if something feels off or wrong. But I think, again, if it has been something that we truly believe that this individual has a particular grace and that God has led us to them, we also have to be aware that there's going to be a warfare there, especially if it's something that can draw us on further in the spiritual life. There's going to be a warfare that attacks that particular relationship. And this goes for a whole host of relationships, too, I think, in our life, too. You know, those who are friends in the spiritual life, supporters, relationships between spouses, and, uh, you know, where there can be these subtle ways the evil one will seek to undermine that trust. And when that breaks down over the course of time, it can be very hard to gain it back. If you remember last week, we read that when one elder treated someone poorly, all the young monks began to lose faith in in the elders and the counsel that they gave. And so it had a kind of sweeping impact upon the entire community. And uh, so on both sides, you know, the elder has to be uh, careful and discerning, but we also have to be discerning that we don't allow our minds and our hearts to be drawn you know, by emotion or by a thought that could possibly lead us away from a faithful uh, counselor. Rachel, and then uh, I saw, it says BK Lab on my screen. So Rachel first, I do not think I'm being too harsh here that the asceticism spoken of here is sometimes taken as superstitious. But in fact, when one treats it as such, it is a lack of faith in God's providential care of each and every soul. Also, a lack of patience. Well, the father just said better than I. Oh, you're talking about me, I think there. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, you know, I see, I think so in our day, you know, that we, I think religion as a whole and the idea of spiritual direction is seen as a kind of hocus pocus, hocus pocus, or you know, kind of superstitious kind of thing. And I think partly is because we don't articulate it very well, and perhaps we don't bear witness to the fruit of it in our day to day life. And uh, we tend to pick and choose things that we read or we gather on our own, or even those who are involved in spiritual direction do the same kind of thing rather than through long practice, through frequent confession themselves, regular spiritual direction themselves throughout the course of their life, and then deep immersion in the writings of the fathers, it can seem superstitious rather than being the science of sciences, the art of arts, that they were the deepest, in a sense, psychotherapists, you know, that they knew the soul really well and what afflicts it, and what were the means of healing it. And we've lost sight of that by not going back to the roots of of the spiritual life at all. And uh, this is where I think we're sort of in a privileged position uh, to read the fathers in the way that we are, Uh, not rapidly, but sort of struggling with these questions. How do you listen to an elder? How do you pick an elder? What are the things that you are to be wary of? Or what are you to be looking for? And uh, these are precisely the things we need to be thinking about in our days, especially since maybe it's very difficult to find someone like those are being described here. BK Leb, do you have a comment here? There you go. I heard a man who had dealt with sexual abuse at the church say that you don't have to have to heal to be holy. I'm wondering your thoughts about this. 
Is healing necessarily and intrinsically related to holiness? That's an excellent question. And I would say no, you know, that our salvation comes to us through Christ. And there's none of us that are going to exit this world uh, well-adjusted or free from the wounds that we have experienced throughout the course of our life, whether it was in our youth or throughout our adulthood, that it's, it's really faith, the depth of our love of God, our trust in him that is most important and brings the, the deeper kind of healing and the healing that comes from having faith in him. And, you know, the two aren't uh, opposed to each other. You know, the deeper our faith in God becomes, often the, the deeper wounds that we bear on a psychological or emotional level, uh, as we are opened up to the grace of God, great healing can come to us. Or if we enter into a kind of therapy for those kinds of wounds, uh, deep healing can come to in, in and through the action of the therapeutic work that God, it's not as though God is absent from the actions and the skills of, of, uh, of a very good therapist to help us deal with perhaps profound wounds of, of abuse in one kind or another, whether it's sexual abuse or physical abuse, that God is always part of that. In the same way that we would sort of understand that the skills given to a physician or a surgeon are God-given gifts, and we can appreciate and understand that. Uh, but in terms of our salvation, uh, I, I think this is where we've lost sight of things in our own day. There was a shift, I think, with uh, the, I don't want to say the rise of psychology, because it, uh, psychology existed certainly before Sigmund Freud, and uh, who was an atheist. But I think there was this movement within the culture of this loss of the sight of religious man or religious woman or man of faith, woman of faith to becoming therapeutic man, therapeutic woman. And so we began seeking healing more and more as there was this drift away from the life of faith as the sort of the, the religious and spiritual culture began to break down. People began to search more and more to rely more and more upon uh, the psychological sciences. And, and so there's this shift to looking at the person in, I, I think, in a truncated way. You know, certainly the emotional life is an essential part of who we are as human beings. But when we set aside this whole aspect of who we are, our relationship with God, that we are spiritual beings, that we've been created for for God and we find our wholeness and completeness in and through him when we move away from this sense of our identity then we begin to seek that identity in other things you know whether it's seeking this healing of our deep wounds and overcoming them or elevating ourselves within the world the culture by the things that we pursue or the things that we accomplish we begin to root our identity in a very earth-centered, worldly-centered way, rather than seeing ourselves in light of that relationship with God who's created us. And so that longing, that urgent longing that Augustine talks about in his writings, so, you know, our hearts are restless till they rest in thee, that we fi only find our completeness, our wholeness in God. When we turn away from that, there's a kind of desperation, I think, that we experience within ourselves as human beings to fill a void that only God can fill. And so this is why you see people searching for more and more ways to satisfy themselves emotionally, materially, whatever way they can within the world, and yet how often it fails over and over again. And uh, Whereas those who might have nothing in this world and might even be deeply wounded by the realities of their life, often in the depth of their faith, there's a kind of wholeness there and genuineness there that others don't see. And it's interesting, as a priest over the course of time, some of the people that I've talked to that have been most deeply wounded by life, even going back to pre-verbal times, or the earliest years of their life, they were most deeply formative and were, you know, abused in one form or another. 
and find themselves, you know, making their way through life along a path that is very painful because they've been so affected by the abuses that they've experienced and hanging by a thread, as it were, in regards to faith and sometimes even hating God for creating them. It's interesting that I've often seen within them the deepest faith of all the people that I've talked to. And nobody from externals would see that because they would probably see their life as a mess. You know, from outside appearances, their life seems to be a wreck and chaotic. But within, despite their actions or despite the things that they do, there's often this love for God or yearning for God, but this genuine tenderness and generosity to those who are really the most poor and needy within our culture. They respond with almost an immediacy of love to the needs of others and a generosity that at times astounds me. And so the question that was brought up here uh, is healing necessarily intrinsically related to holiness? I would say no, because I so often I see God working in and through the brokenness and even profound brokenness of others to the point that they don't even realize their holiness. They see nothing of it in themselves at all. And yet it often is, is really profound. It's a humbling ex experience when you see it. And so excellent question. Any other thoughts? I think Archbishop Fulton Sheen, Rachel said, spoke about that in his talks on confession. Perhaps I'd have to go back and, and listen to it. Okay. Uh, let's move on here a little bit. The brother said, if advice is given with regard to some thought, which is the source of sorrow and worry, and afterwards the sorrow continues, what must we think, then think or do? And so I think we've probably all had this experience. You know, we're given advice or counsel and it might be wise and we might seek to follow it, but the anxiety clings to us and the worry clings to us and so, or, or sorrow uh, here. And how are we to understand that? And so he responds, if after advice is given, the thought continues to grieve the one who has, has asked for advice from the, his spiritual father, this does not occur without reason. It is clear that one who confessed the thought and heard the counsel of his spiritual father did not diligently and conscientiously act on the father's advice. For this reason, one is obligated to correct his error and to do that which he is ordered, since he is not it is not possible for God, who speaks through the mouths of his saints, to lie. Now, this is one part of the answer. So don't get uh, your hackles up in terms of the response here. But uh, I think we, we have to look at that, that sometimes we can hear the counsel that is given, but not fully respond to it. And sometimes... Uh, I know it's stated here in very starkly, but sometimes we are so wrapped up in our sorrow and our worry that it so afflicts us that even though we hear the spiritual advice that is given, we don't act on it fully. And, you know, part of that might simply because we are in such in the group of such fear that it, we find it hard to maybe enter into the kind of prayer that the spiritual elder is, is giving or embracing whatever other counsel that he's giving. So we do have to have a willingness and humility to, to look into our hearts and say, if, if, the count, if this is still clinging to me, what might be going on in terms of how I'm hearing things? Am I really hearing what this spiritual elder is saying to me? Now we should always have the level of comfort of going back and talking uh, uh, to the one who counsels us about these things, expecting that that would be treated with tenderness. But the first place often to begin is the most obvious place, and that's within our own hearts. That often when something like anxiety or sorrow has us in its grip, 
it can be very difficult to break free from it or to have this kind of trust in God or abandon ourselves to him in such a way where that anxiety or sorrow can begin to ease, where we can experience the sweetness of God's love or the healing of his touch, that we are so bound and we have been so turned inward because of the pain, seeking to protect ourselves that, uh, that we can't respond fully. And this is where patience is needed, you know, both from, you know, the, the, the one who's undergoing the struggle, but also the spiritual elder to, you know, to constantly encourage the person uh, to move on, that they're on the right path, that sometimes healing can take uh, a good while or to break free of certain passions can take a great reliance upon the grace of God. Anthony. It seems to me that the grief or pain is often one of the mind or imagination, but the center of the soul is confident in God. The nagging thought is precisely the fog of thought, and the devil wishes to descend to the noose, the eye of the heart or the eye of the soul, but God, who does not abandon the man, allows us to consciously unite our thoughts to the crown of thorns of Christ's crucifixion. Right, and you know that takes a certain depth of faith to see that, you know, to be able to say, even in the midst of that sorrow or the, feeling the weight where we're sweating blood, as it seems, you know, in our day-to-day -day life, to be able to make that same kind of ascent. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, even while we're praying, you know, that this chalice might pass us by, and. Uh, it takes a, a great deal of faith and a perfection of faith to be able to do that. But you're, you're right here, you know, the, the devil can enter into this precisely through the, the mind, the imagination and the thoughts. And this is again, what the fathers talked about over and over again, that this is where the battle is fought. It's often psychological. And so the, the, the power of our emotions, the power of our imagination, past things that we've experienced that gave rise to anxiety or sorrow or worry, can be in our imagination so deeply that our, it's like uh, muscle memory. Our thoughts, our imagination snaps back to the familiar. And the beautiful thing about the deep immersion in prayer and it almost seems inconceivable that this could take place, that imagination and memory can be healed. That even the deepest and darkest things in our life can be touched by the grace of God, that we can gain a kind of freedom, not in the sense that we move to a kind of denial of reality, but they are taken up into the, the relationship with God in such a profound way and into the mystery of the cross that they do not hobble us. And in the sense that we lose hope in ourselves, for ourselves, or that we lose hope in God. This is often, I think in spiritual direction, one of the most difficult things to overcome because the, precisely because of memory and imagination are so powerful. You know, we can, there are certain things in our, from our youth that we can bring back, you know, it's not in our conscious mind, but when we turn our thoughts in that way, it's amazing how quickly we can go back to those things and how vivid they can be. You know, it's like we're right back there. And one of the things that uh, I don't, you know, that Freud talked about, and I've always, often found this fascinating. He said that in the unconscious, there is no sense of time. That for us, you know, things take place in this linear fashion. We have this experience of time where we go through these events. But in the unconscious, even though we aren't aware of those things in our day-to-day -day life, they're not present to our conscious minds. They are all still there and present to us. It's not as though they disappear. And so, and what he found through his clinical experience is that there is no sense of time in the unconscious. And so things that we experienced 30, 40, 50 years ago, when something triggers that, it can emerge in that moment with the emotional power and with the vividness that in which we experienced it all those years ago. And, uh, 
and so you know i think why healing you know confession for so many generations was healing was that it was this place where one frequently went to unburden oneself precisely of some of those and to open oneself to the action of god's grace in regards to some of those things that were most deeply wounding either that we could would commit ourselves or that we experience you know the the pain the anger from and so opening oneself to the grace of god through the healing the, the healing sacrament and where there was this movement away from spiritual practice more and more to the therapeutic work and less in the immersion in the life of god we find that that capacity for healing is 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 limited and even you know a lot of psychotherapists will tell you this that for many things where deep wounds are involved or where there are personality disorders that things were so wounding especially in the formation of personality that the goals of psychotherapy are very modest you know because it's part of the formation of personality that has taken place it's very hard to undo that whereas in the life of faith there's the lack of pressure to undo what can't be undone and more a deeper kind of healing where our identity is not caught up in it and so often even in psych psych psychology or psychotherapy when people are given a diagnosis there can be something good about that and something bad about that because sometimes it helps people understand their experience and what they're going through but sometimes it locks them into a certain sense of identity on borderline personality you know and then you know they see themselves through this lens and it can add to this kind of hopelessness about their life whereas if one is going through psychotherapy but has this deep faith one can see those truths about self in the struggle but our self identity is rooted more in god and what god has done for us the depth of his love and mercy that our dignity as a human being does not mean that we have to have it all together or that we sort of arise out of this pristine past you know where we had perfect parents and you know went to perfect schools and have no psychological wounds and when we look at the lives of some of the saints we know some of them struggled with depression and you know all sorts of different you know problems and that even some of their ascetical practices were defense mechanisms ways of altering you know mood you know that there sometimes they they were done to such an extreme that we sort of have to acknowledge that that was probably so in their life and yet there was this incredible sanctity that we see in their life this incredible holiness and so again you know getting back to the previous questions is a very important one that we don't need to diminish the things that are good in our culture you know in terms of therapeutic work or or again with medicine either but we understand that all healing comes through the grace of god and the most complete healing is when we see all of our life and the things that we struggle with as you know finding healing in and through him and that our identity is rooted in him and ultimately what is promised to us a share in his own life okay so uh where did i leave off here oh the saints don't lie okay letter c on 176 The brother said, "Should we then ask the same elder about the same thing or not?" Because I remember, Father, that once I I once asked an elder about a thought of mine, and he advised me not to do a certain thing. When I asked the same elder once more about the same thing, he told me to do what he had earlier told me not to do. Why does this happen? Boy, people were as much of a big pain back then as they are now. <laughs> <laughs> you know always asking these questions difficult questions uh but it's it's actually a very good question and we'll see how astute the fathers were because they they did acknowledge that that certain elders could give contra contrary advice contradictory advice on different occasions and why 
The elder answered, Brother, the judgments of God are a great abyss. Nevertheless, know that God variously puts into the mouth of the spiritual father who is speaking an answer appropriate to the disposition of the heart of the one asking, sometimes putting the hearer to the test in one case, in other cases, letting him hear at two different times, different answers from the same spiritual father, since from one instance to the next, the disposition of the heart of the one asking may have changed. In other words, it happens that some change spiritually, even though that they, they may be subject to the same external conditions, and thus God speaks to them in a different way through the mouth of this holy man. So, you know, it's an incredible insight because this is true that, and even in psychotherapy, you'll see this too, that as a person begins, enters into that struggle, they, they begin to see different aspects of it or a certain level of healing begins to take place. And then they reveal, say, if you're in therapy, if we approach it from a therapeutic standpoint, as a kind of self-knowledge begins to emerge or things begin to come to the mind through the kind of uh, free association that often will take place within, within therapeutic work, deeper insights emerge. And so one begins to circle around the, and see the many facets of the problem that they're struggling with. And so often, uh, as an, an internal emotional narrative is being built, one will see those interior contradictions within oneself and also hear what the therapist is saying in a different way, or perhaps the, the therapist approaches it from a different perspective. And similarly, what is being said here is that there's something of the disposition of the heart, that the human person is a mystery. And... Uh, and we often lose sight of this as well, and that God can enter into this in the very, in the deepest kind of way, and see the subtlest movements that take place, where a particular counsel is needed at one time, and then as a person grows or develops, or something changes in the disposition or the experience, another counsel is given. And so, you know, the spiritual direction that I received when I was in my 20s, dealing with the things that I was dealing with as a young man in his 20s, just coming out of college, were, are quite different than what they were, say, 10 years later from that. And, uh, and so the things that I gravitated toward, or even the way that I heard things uh, that the spiritual director was saying to me, and I remember once in spiritual directions saying, when coming to an insight about something, why didn't you tell me this? And he said, David, I've, I have been telling you this. I have, I have been telling you this for a long period of time. And it's just what I was struggling with in the spiritual life or how I was engaging in it. I was not hearing the fullness of it. It wasn't that I wasn't responding to it. It was that I didn't have the capacity to hear what was being said in the way that I needed to hear in order to know greater healing. And so it doesn't diminish the counsel that was given or, or the response. Like often there will be this immersion in the ascetical life and sometimes it can be very severe and because the, it can alter the emotional, interior emotional state, like fasting very deeply alters the interior state. The, the, the humbling of the mind and the body that takes place can sort, sort of transform the internal world psychologically for, for a person. And so there can be this movement into the embrace of asceticism as a kind of emotional defense mechanism. You're trying to get control of what is uncontrollable in your life, the passions, but you're relying upon yourself and the ascetical practices separated somewhat from the relationship with God. You're not relying so much on the grace of God as you are trying through your will and through the fasting to gain control of particular passions. And it's only over the course of time that a person might come to see, well, okay, that was too extreme and I see what I was doing back there 10 years ago, but it might be what was needed. 
or it might have been the only thing I was capable of doing at that point, where I, where I was, or the depth, you know, whatever the hold of particular passions had on me, I was responding in, in the way uh, that I felt that I needed, and maybe I wasn't hearing everything that was being said to me, but there is this kind of movement towards greater healing. And so in some ways, I think in the father saying here that the disposition of the one asking differs from time to time. And so the council will differ or what is emphasized in the council can differ. And so having a sense of this as we enter into spiritual direction can be very helpful because sometimes it can be confusing. Uh, you know, why, why would the elder be saying that to me? Why would my confessor be saying this to me at one time where he seemed to emphasize something at another time? And it might also be that he is only or she is only being given a partial picture. That even when we confess certain things or even when we talk about our spiritual struggles, we can filter certain parts of that you know, so that it sounds a certain way that we might not reveal everything, you know, in regards to our thoughts or what's going on internally, or how we are engaging in our spiritual life or prayer life. And so the understanding that a spiritual director or confessor might have might be limited in a given moment until the, the individual is able to speak about what they're struggling with, with a greater clarity and honesty. And it might not be that they're purposely holding things back. It might be embarrassment or shame or lack of self-understanding, depending where they are in their spiritual life. And so it's amazing, you know, back here between the fourth and the seventh century, I think, you know, the they don't ignore the external conditions that can have an effect upon the spiritual counsel that is given. And so the advice here is right on the mark. You have to look deeply into your own heart to how you're responding and if you're responding at all. Plus you also have to look at the, your own changing dispositions over the course of time. And it, it might not be in a bad way. Again, it can be changing disposition to seeing something with a greater clarity than that alters the counsel that is given. Anybody have any comments or questions about that? I know it was a lot to throw out there. Okay, as an example, let us recall the case of King Hezekiah. The prophet Isaiah said to him, set thine house in order, prepare a will, for thou shalt die and not live. This news caused a change in the heart of the king and he grieved. Through the same holy man, the prophet Isaiah God told him, behold, I will add unto thy days 15 years. If God should speak through someone else, then the matter would constitute a scandal since two holy men would be saying two different things. Then again, God spoke through Jonah to the hearts of the Ninevites telling them, yet three days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. When, however, the disposition of the Ninevites' hearts changed and they repented, God showed his great love of mankind and did not destroy the city since many of the citizens had become good. For this reason, one should not change the holy man whom he consults, but again should consult him as often as the need presents itself until God inspires his confessor to give another answer if there is actually a reason for this. Thus it is that the same spiritual father offers different advice so that a scandal might not occur. So with the Ninevites, you know, that the whole city repented at the words uh, of Jonah. And everybody put on sackcloth and ashes, including all the animals. And so a profound conversion took place that then brought upon them the mercy and the generosity of God. So any, any thoughts or comments? All right, letter D. The brother said, if having heard the opinion of my spiritual father on some matter that I bring up, I realize that things have not developed as the elder told me, then what should I think or do in order to remove the doubt to which I have fallen? 
So he keeps taking it further and further. Well, okay, <laughs> if you know, you know, I realize that it hasn't taken place, how do I remove then the doubt uh, in, in my elder? And the elder answered, the answer you're seeking is similar to the previous one. How? Listen. Your spiritual father has counseled you on a certain matter that you should do thus, and you encountered an obstacle, correct? You must first examine yourself, lest your heart took pleasure in this fact, or perhaps you did not leave the matter wholly to God, or for this reason God did not allow things to happen in accordance with the advice given to you by the elder. If you investigate with care and find things are thus, then know that the reason for things not going as the elder said lies with you. And thus you should not attribute this circumstance to the advice of the spiritual father, but should blame yourself. Eliseus could confidently sent his servant to resurrect the dead child, but he was not resurrected. The blame lies not with the sender, but the one sent. For how else can it be explained that Eliseus himself later resurrected the child. So there are whole, again, a whole host of things, and we're in the coming weeks, we're going to go through them that affect the way that we hear and respond to the guidance of those who uh, under whose charge we've placed ourselves and the, our dispositions, the way that we apply things, whether or not we fully trusted in the grace of God, you know, obstacles that got in our way in one form or another. And it keeps going deeper and deeper. But I, I think in our own day, this is a very important thing because we often will move from place to place. And it's our tendency to hear the things that we want to hear. And it's not necessarily the best thing for us spiritually. And so the first moment that we experience something like this, where we still struggle with the same sin, or we struggle with worry or, or sorrow, then we, you know, begin to doubt the efficacy of going to a certain spiritual director, and we'll think about making a move. But what this creates within us is a kind of instability that means that we're only dealing with things on this surface level. If we move from one to another, we're going to be back in that starting position of telling them what it is, what it is that we're struggling with, where they have that same surface knowledge. And eventually we can get to that same place with them, where we run into a similar obstacle that is yet to be under, overcome within us that we have to realize that there is a kind of both emotional and spiritual resistance within us to conversion, that we have an attachment to our own vision of things, we have an attachment to the things that draw us into sin, that are, you know, that satisfy our appetites, our desires, and so we can rationalize a whole host of things, and we can have this contradiction within us where we want and don't want the same thing at the same time. And so it can take us a while to really abandon ourselves to God, really develop a kind of hatred for the things that become an impediment to our knowing the fullness of his grace or healing. And so what is being said here is, is very important on, on multiple levels. I think in our day-to-day -day life too, in our struggles, that we have to have, you know, a sign of emotional maturity is to be able to hold two contradictory things in the mind at the same time. And, you know, when we have this tendency to look at things in a black and white fashion, you know, then we're, we're going to be pulled, you know, in a, all, a whole host of directions. And usually the one that, you know, our own myopic vision sort of leads us towards. Whereas if we can hold and see those contradictory elements within ourselves, acknowledge them without being thrown into this kind of emotional or, or spiritual storm and wait upon God and to be able to trust in the one that he's given to guide us or to trust in the grace of the sacrament. This is where one begins to make one's path forward. It's hard. I don't want that to sound simple. 
I mean, this kind of ability to hold those contradictory things in our minds and to be able to look at them and look at them honestly can be very, a very difficult thing to do. So it's funny, you know, I've often, I've often heard myself say this before that the Desert Fathers were the first depth psychologists. But when I read a paragraph or two like this, I really begin to see, yes, it's true, they were. You know, the, their understanding of how the human mind works. If you're willing to give the time to listen to them and, and to struggle with these things, you, you begin to see it really clearly. Anthony. Father, this isn't just a religious topic. It involves the philosophical discipline of epistemology, the search for a certain truth, how we know things, right? And, uh, and, and we Americans are so impoverished in philosophical language and concepts, right? You know, even in the sense of, yeah, like how it is that we come to know things, you know, isn't uh, something that a lot of us put much time into. You know, of wondering, we, we often lose that capacity to wonder about our life or wonder why things happen in the way they do in our life or that we make the choices that we do in our life. And that lack of wonder, you know, this lack of uh, engaging in this kind of discipline of epistemology, you know, of thinking about how do we come to know something. The fathers did that, you know, I think by entering into the laboratory of the desert. You know, looking at how they came, how they came to experience things and the knowledge, how they experienced things and the knowledge that arose out of that. And uh, I think in our day and age, information has become the thing that we emphasize or technology that makes things happen and makes them happen instantaneously where we don't have to think about it. You know, we, we don't want to have to think about anything. We just want to look, to look it up on Google. And it has become so easy for us. It all started with the television tuner. The moment that you don't have to walk across and turn the channel, that's where we really got lazy. Uh, but uh, in general, we can be, you know, we can have this laziness about our own lives. And I think when we become, when our world narrows, it is a curious thing because look, we're having this group where we're connected from all these different places of the country and the world, and we can discuss these things. But so often this, the very same technology can really narrow our, our vision, that we can live in this virtual world and we're being driven more by a curiosity, you know, this about information and we'll go from site to site, place to place, or to have certain things be satisfied by the, the wonder of that technology. And so we lose sight of the self. We're, we're living, and that's, you remember I said, uh, Henry Nouwen defined entertainment as it means in between. And so we get stuck in this in-between world of virtual reality through so much of our entertainment. We're living in another person's world when we watch a movie or a television show and we enter into those characters or we're watching football or baseball all the time and we stop live to the point that we stop living our lives and stop having an, an interior life. And, we, and do, we prefer in some ways, and this is a sad thing, I think we prefer to escape reality. You know, T.S. Eliot said that a human being can only stand so much reality. It can only take so much reality. And so we want to escape it. And we find newer and better ways to do it all the time. Carol wrote, my daughter once asked a coworker that what he thought about a particular topic. He said, I haven't thought about that. Let me look it up. And yeah, and at least he said, let me look it up. Uh, I think most times it's, you know, uh, I haven't thought about that and I'm not really interested in it. And uh, I think universities were much more of a place of wonder and thought and learning how to think. And now so often they become training grounds like technical schools, preparation for work 
And so even the study doesn't focus on the formation of the human being, rather, rather it becomes a preparation to engage in a particular field. Cardinal Newman lamented that, you know, the breakdown of liberal studies, you know, of the study of humanities. And when, when you have universities become technical schools, there, you know, it sort of diminishes uh, the development of, of, our, of ourselves as human beings. And I don't think we have to look too far to see that there's a lot, there's a lot of truth in that. We read too fast. Who gets anything out of that? Who gets anything more than reading a few paragraphs at a time? It would take us 20 years to get through college if we did it that way. But. So that brings us to 836. So when we stop there, there's a lot more in this hypothesis that's beautiful. So we'll stop there for the evening. Deborah, are you putting up your hand or are you saying goodbye? You're putting up your hand? Okay. Off topic, asking for prayers for all those affected by the flooding in Southern Montana and Yellowstone Park, several rivers flooded, roads, bridges gone. Definitely, most certainly. And there's gonna be a lot of terrible heat this week that's uh, going to affect a lot of people too. So I think we wanna keep all those in prayer who might be suffering. Okay, so let's close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. God. Thank you all.